I have never met a celebrity, never hung out backstage with a rock star, never been introduced to a Hollywood movie star, never shaken the hand of a president of the United States of America. I don't even think I've ever received an autograph from a famous professional athlete. But there have been times when I've wondered, how would I act if I ever got introduced to a celebrity? I suspect I would rearrange my schedule to avail myself of the opportunity. I might get a little nervous, anxious, perhaps even a bit tongue-tied. It'd probably be an experience that's quite memorable, one that I would retell for years to come. But I wonder, what about you? Have you ever met a celebrity? This morning, I want you to know that there is someone here who wants to meet with you who is above and beyond celebrity status. He doesn't just want to uh, shake your hand. He wants to shake your heart. He doesn't just want to give you an autograph. He wants to stamp his indelible impression upon your very life. He doesn't just want to spend a few fleeting moments with you backstage. No, he wants to spend forever with you in all of eternity. The one to which I speak is none other than Jesus the Christ. It baffles me, it blows me away to realize that the sole sovereign savior of the universe wants a divine appointment with people like you and a person like me. We're talking about God here. We're speaking of the one who spoke the world into existence, who tilted the earth on its axis, flung the stars into space, heaped up the mountains and scooped out the valleys. This is the God who wants to meet with you in this very moment. Now, if you're not careful, you can allow this Sunday just to be like any other Sunday. If you're not careful, this Sunday can come and go and you wouldn't be the benefactor of it. But need I remind you, you've never experienced this Sunday before. And when it's come and gone, you'll never experience this Sunday again. And in this moment, this Sunday, this day, this very hour, the sovereign savior of the universe has a divine appointment with you and he wants to get up close and personal. It's with that in mind that I invite you to take your Bible. Turn to Exodus chapter 24. Stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Today I want to read all 18 verses of this chapter in your hearing as we continue our sermon series on the life of Moses. Please listen to the word of God as it comes to us from Exodus chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. Once again, they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all his words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on this mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on top of the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the opening lines of our story, it doesn't seem that God wants to be up close and personal. The Israelites have been traveling for some three months. They finally made it to Mount Sinai. It's called the mountain of God. Elsewhere, it's called Mount Horeb. It's the place where God promised to meet with his people. And when they got there, it seemed as if God gave them a a Heisman stiff arm. It seemed as if God said, I don't want to get up close and personal. I want to be cold and distant. You can worship me, but only at a distance. You can't come up on this mountain. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, put limits or boundaries around this mountain. Don't let anybody come up the mountain. Don't let anyone touch the foot of the mountain. For if they even touch the foot of the mountain, they will surely die. Here in our story of Exodus 24, the Lord does invite Moses and 73 of his closest friends, Aaron, Aaron's two sons, and the 70 elders of Israel. He invites them to come up a certain way, a partial limit of that mountain. Then he tells them to stop. He only gives Moses permission to come up to the very top of the mountain. Now, I've already given you the premise of the entire sermon in the introduction, that ours is a God who wants to get up close and personal. Yet when you read the beginning of this passage, it would seem as if God does not want to get up close and personal. In fact, he would rather us stay a arm's distance away from him. You ask yourself, what's going on? Why is God acting like this? Is God being rude? Is he irritable? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the cloud? I mean, what gives? What's going on with God in this moment? A further question would be, why would God spend all of this time, energy, and effort to liberate the Israelites out of Egyptian captivity and to bring them to the mountain of God only to keep them at an arm's distance from him? This doesn't make sense. Why is God acting this way? 
I don't think God is being rude. I don't think that he's being insensitive, nor do I think that he woke up on the wrong side of the cloud. I think God is simply being holy. Holiness is a concept that is hard for us to wrap our warped minds around. God's holiness. That characteristic seems to be the one word that characterizes God most frequently in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, it's the only description of God that is placed in superlative fashion. What I mean is this. You and I know that God is love, yet nowhere in the Bible does it say God is love, love, love. You and I acknowledge that God is merciful, yet nowhere in sacred scripture does it write that God is merciful, merciful, merciful. And you and I understand that God is forgiving, yet nowhere in the scripture does it say that God is forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. Yet both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it does say God is holy, holy, holy. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, it says God is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation, the angels declare holy, holy, holy is the God who was and is and is to come. It's the one word that's placed in the triple superlative fashion that describes the ultimate characteristic of God because God is holy. Now the problem is that you and I are everything opposite of holy. We are completely and utterly sinful. It's not only that sin has touched and tainted us, but it has marked and marred us. We are completely and utterly sinful from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet. From the outside of our bodies to the inside of our organs, we are completely and utterly sinful. The evidence of this sin is that our bodies get old and diseased. They age. And our hearts are corrupt. There's no thought that's not tainted by sin. There's no feeling that's not tainted and touched by sin. Everything in our existence is sinful. And you and I would be foolish to try to traipse into the very presence of God being clothed in our sinfulness. So I think that God is being holy. He understands that sin has to be paid for. Payday has to come someday. Judgment has to be leveled against sin in order for sinful people to stand in the presence of a holy God. God has to atone for our sin. That word means he has to cover. He has to cover our sin. You and I understand it as God has to forgive our sin. Once again, that's a concept that's hard for us to understand. The forgiveness of God. I mean, you and I forgive each other every day, multiple times a day. And it's not all that costly, is it? I mean, we forgive each other and nobody has to die for it. We forgive each other and it it, it doesn't really cost us all that much. I mean, wives, you forgive your husband when he forgets to go by the cleaners and pick up the clothes after work, even though he promised you he would pick it up today. And even though he broke his promise, eh, you still forgive him, don't you? Okay, not many people in the other service forgave either. I guess, I, I mean, I think, I think wives do forgive their husbands. For that. And husbands, you forgive your wives for adamantly pointing out what a loser you are for not picking up the cleaners, even though you promised that you would pick it up after work, right? We forgive as husbands and wives. We forgive our coworker when he tries to take credit for all of our hard work. 
We forgive the coach for not giving our son a chance. We forgive our four-year-old daughter when she rather creatively and artistically takes a blue crayon and goes into her pink room and draws on the wall. We forgive our quote-unquote best friend even when that best friend didn't invite us to her party. We forgive people all the time, don't we? We forgive people. We do our best not to hold grudges. We do our best not to bring it back up again. We forgive people all the time and it doesn't cost all that much. Nobody has to die in order for you to forgive me, for me to forgive you. If I do you wrong or you do me wrong. But our forgiveness is fleeting. Our forgiveness is is fragile. The forgiveness of God is full, free, and forever. And because of that, it's costly. It costs a great price. Because our sin, it's more than just a broken promise. It's far more than just saying a bad word. Our sin reaches deeper than a dirty deed or an inappropriate thought. No, we are born sinful. We have a sin nature. And that nature we've had since the moment of conception. We were born into rebellion against God. This whole notion of of the total depravity of man, that the original sin that you were born into and I was born into, this whole concept really hit home to me when Molly Grace was born. I've told you the story before. Undoubtedly, I'll tell it to you again. But Molly Grace was born on April the 3rd, 2002. She is our firstborn. You can imagine how elated Jane Ellen and I were when Molly Grace safely arrived. I can remember walking up and down the hallway of that hospital, thinking to myself, the maternity hall must be the happiest place on the planet. Why? Because my daughter was born. Everybody should be excited because my darling daughter has now come into this world. Woohoo! And so I would go up and down the hallway thinking, everybody's got to be excited. But you know, not every story that comes out of maternity hall is a good story. Some of us understand tragic stories that come out of hospitals, stories that even leave the the most hard-hearted reduced down to a puddle of tears. The day after Molly Grace was born, Jane Ellen and I heard one of those kind of stories. The nurse came in and she saw the excitement on her face. She could hear it in our shouts and screams. She said, I wish everybody was as happy as you guys. And I said, are they not? Tell me who they are. I'll go and tell them that Molly Grace has been born and they'll get excited. She said, no, you know, the same day that Molly Grace was born, a teenage girl came in and gave birth to a son. That bouncing baby boy came into the world and almost immediately the doctors knew something was drastically wrong. It didn't take them very long to determine that that baby was born addicted to opium. You and I would commonly call it heroin. Heroin is a highly addictive drug. The only way that baby could come into the world addicted to heroin is because mom was a user of heroin. And the addiction of that mother was passed on 
to that little infant. You talk about deflating the room. I mean, in that moment, even the balloons began to let down a little bit. And I thought to myself, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't quite seem fair. After all, that little baby boy who who is struggling for his life, he never willingly took one hit. It never was his decision to do that. He never made the decision to, to go down the dark alley, stand behind the dumpster, wait for the dealer to come and give him his fix. He never rearranged his schedule to accommodate his addiction. This doesn't quite seem right. It doesn't quite seem fair. And then all of a sudden it hit me. Such is the case with original sin. It's not that you necessarily did anything wrong. You inherited a craving for rebellion against God and you got it from mom and dad. Their addiction has become your addiction. Their craving for rebellion has become your craving for rebellion. And on this Father's Day, don't get mad at dad and don't get mad at mom because they got it from me, mom, and papa. And don't get mad at me, mom, and papa because they got it from your great-grandparents. And don't get mad at your great-grandparents because they got it from the great-great-grandparents. You see, this could go on forever. But it all goes back to the uh, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, our first parents, and because of their sin, It has been passed on to every generation. It has not skipped any generation. Every person that's ever walked the face of this earth is addicted to something far greater than heroin. They're addicted to something called sin. And then in fact, the apostle Paul says, because of that addiction, we are spiritually stillborn before the Lord because we're dead in our sins and transgressions. We are dead. And even though we are spiritually dead, we still crave that sin that brings about our demise. Original sin, sin nature, took on a whole new meaning that day. I thought to myself as I looked in that little bassinet, I said, wow, that's a beautiful bundle of sin. (laughs) But that's it, that's a bundle of sin, but beautiful. And every person that's ever walked this side is a bundle of sin. And God understands that he has to do something with that sin nature in order for you to be able to get up close and personal with the God who wants to get up close and personal with you. So Exodus 24 is an entire chapter that's laced in covenantal language and symbolism. It is God who says, I want to remove every obstacle so that I can get up close and personal with you. So that we can uh, have a tremendous Sunday morning. So we can have a tremendous life together. Not just a few fleeting moments, but forever. I want to do everything possible to remove the sin that is between us. And so this story is, is laced with covenantal language. If you stop and think about it, that's extremely gracious, isn't it? I mean, our God is extremely gracious to the person who wants to try to say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace. That's a bunch of theological baloney because you come to a story like this and this is laced and and, and it's just dripping with grace. God says, I want to remove everything possible so that you and I can be up close and personal. If you stop and think about it, it would have been enough had God simply spoken to Moses through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. It would have been enough had God just merely sent 10 plagues upon Egypt. It would have been enough 
Hey, God simply liberated the Israelites from the Egyptian captivity. They've been there for more than 400 years. It would have been enough. Had God simply parted the Red Sea and enabled them to cross on dry ground, it would have been enough had God just simply allowed them to wander around the wilderness, feeding them manna from heaven, and allowing them to drink water from a rock. It would have been enough, right? But God said, I love you so much, I want to get up close and personal. So he gives us this story of Exodus 24 and God paints himself and portrays himself as a God who is revealer and redeemer. He is revealer and redeemer because he's revealer and because he's redeemer that enables us to get up close and personal with the Lord. It enables us to snuggle with the savior. It enables us to get up close with Jesus and for us to be able to be in his presence and allow to enjoy and he allows us to enjoy him both now and forevermore. So God is revealer. What do I mean by that? I mean that it is only God who has revealed himself to his people through his word. Every other God and goddess of antiquity was unstable and unpredictable. You never quite knew what was going to tick them off. You never quite knew what was going to make them mad. In fact, you uh, were a person who would worship these other gods and goddesses, not so much to worship them, but to appease them. Because as an individual of antiquity, you wanted your cattle to live and you wanted your crops to survive. You wanted your life to go well. And if your cattle uh, died and if your crops failed and if life was caving in on you, the only thing you could result and conclude was that the gods and goddesses were angry with you. So you would try to appease the sun God or you would try to offer a sacrifice to the fertility goddess in the hopes that somehow your cattle would be fertile again and your crops would grow again. And it's a lousy way to do religion. It's a way to do religion that's cascaded in fear and it's dominated by frustration. And you wonder if those gods are really going to shine favor upon you. Yet Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, has said, I will reveal my word. I will remove all the guesswork. I will show you who I am and what I expect. No other God has ever done this. No other God would dare do this. Yet God says, I will bind myself to my word so that I promise I will never do anything contrary to my word. And in my word, you will discover who I am and what I expect. So he gives the people of God the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And then he gives them the stipulations or the laws and commands that follow, which is a really a further description of those 10 commandments. And God says, in these 10 commandments, I show you who I am and what I expect. And I promise that obedience will lead to blessing and disobedience will lead to curses. So if you want to be right with God, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. That word before can also be translated besides. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol out of anything and bow down and worship it. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And number four, you should remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And number five, honor your father and mother. And number six, do not murder, which is a word that means senseless slaughtering. And number, uh, number seven, uh, do not commit adultery. And number eight, uh, do not steal. Number nine, do not lie. And number 10, do not covet, which is a word that means want something more that you have enough of already. So he says, if you do these 10 things, I promise you, this is who I am and what I expect. If you look closer at those 10 commandments, you realize the first four 
all talk about our vertical relationship with God. This is who God is. We should have another gods before him or besides him. We, we cannot worship any other image or idol. We should not misuse the holy name of God. And we need to honor and, and keep holy this sacred day. And then the next six commandments show us how we ought to relate one to the other. And he starts in the home and works his way out. God says, honor your father and mother. And by the way, don't kill them, okay? Don't murder your parents. Don't murder your spouse. Don't murder other people. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal anything. Don't lie about anything. Don't covet anything. Don't want what your neighbor has because you have enough of it already. So this is how we are to relate. God is the only God who's revealed himself by his word and bound himself by his word. So God will never act contrary to sacred scripture. So people have asked me before, uh, Pastor, have you ever heard God speak? And the answer is yes. Every time I open my Bible and I read his word. Pastor, have you ever heard God Speak out loud? Yeah, because sometimes I read my Bible out loud. <laughs> and when I read my Bible out loud, it's as if I'm hearing the very voice of God because this is God's word and he promises that he will be bound by this word. He will not act contrary to this word. In this word, you see who he is and who you are and how you as a sinful individual can get to a holy God. God has given us his word. This is why the people said not once but twice in verse three and verse seven, everything he has said we will do. We'd be fools not to. He is the only God who's given us his word. The sun God hasn't. The fertility goddess hasn't. No other deity has. Only God. So everything he says, we will do. Everything he says, we will obey. Is that your motto? Is that how you live life? Because God has revealed himself to you, my friend. Everything he says, will you do it? Every place he tells you to go, will you go? Everything he says for you to do, will you obey it? And oh, in this moment, we may say, yes, amen, praise the Lord. But the reality is, most of us say, everything he says that I really like or agree with or believe in, I'll do. And everything he says that's not going to make me uncomfortable and put me on the spot and get me out of my comfort zone, I'll do it. But if there's something better that comes along, if I've got something else to do, if I've got a shopping spree or a ball tournament, or if I've got a vacation, if I've got something else, I think I'd rather do something else. But everything else, everything else, God, I'll do it. I'm with you. Uh, 75%. I'm with you. Uh, just a little bit of the time. And here in this passage, the people would look at us and they would say, why are you being so foolish? This is the only God who has described himself and bound himself by his word. Everything he says we will do. The way we can get up close and personal with God is because we know God is revealer. But secondly, we know that God is redeemer. So the next day, Moses woke up. He built an altar. He put up 12 pillar stones Symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. He told the young Israelite men, go out and get oxen and bring them to be butchered and sacrificed as burnt offerings and fellowship offerings unto the Lord. Because this is laced in covenantal language, I can well imagine that Moses himself would have taken one of those animals and cut it in half and walked in between the two halves of that animal. Symbolic that he was the mediator who on behalf of the people was entering into a covenant with God Almighty. He took half the blood and he sprinkled it on the altar of God. He took the other half and put it in a bowl. 
And then he began to sprinkle that blood upon the people. Can you imagine if I had an object lesson today with a, a bowl of blood, with a little hyssop plant? And I said, okay, guys, now, in just a few moments, I'm going to dip this hyssop plant like a paintbrush into this bowl of blood, and I'm going to sprinkle it on you. What would you do? You wouldn't sit there like that. You would duck and dodge. You would get up and leave. You'd say, whoa, whoa, you're crazy. What are you doing? I don't want that blood on me. Why? Because that blood will stain me. It'll stain my skin and my clothing and my shoes. Exactly. That's why Moses did it. Because everybody in that crowd wanted to be covered by the blood. They wanted to be sprinkled by the blood of the animal because they knew that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. And so as they looked at their brothers and sisters, they saw individuals that had blood droplets on their forehead and on their clothing and on their sandals. And they looked at themselves and they had blood droplets all over their uh, uh, jackets and shirts and uh, pants and shoes. And they said, we want more of God. We want more of God because God is Redeemer. He is the one by his initiative. He is the one by his blood. He is the one by his sacrifice that's made it possible for us as sinful men and women to stand before a holy God. We want to be part of that people. We want to go into God's presence. And the, and the evidence that they were forgiven of sin and enabled to come into the presence is because in verses 9 and following, it says that Moses and 73 of his closest friends, they went and they saw God. And God did not raise his hand against them to strike them. So that means they were covered by the blood. Their sins were forgiven. Now to say they saw God is to say all they saw were his feet. Because he's standing on pavement of sapphire. as clear as the sky blue. And then after they saw God, they ate and they drank. Once again, symbols of the sealing of covenant. In order for a covenant to be sealed, there had to be uh, not only the blood that was uh, placed upon them, but also the meal that was there. And so they ate and they drank and they went up on the mountain. And then, and then the Lord said, I will come and visit with you, but only Moses can come. Everybody down in the valley, they looked up and they saw what looked like a consuming fire that fell upon Mount Sinai. Moses said, listen, if you have any other disputes, if any problems, don't come looking for me. I'm going to be up there with God. <laughs> you take him up with these other two guys. And he goes up on the mountain. And he's there for six days. And he's waiting. And he's waiting. He's waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for that glorious invitation. And then on the seventh day, it is God who says to Moses, come into my presence. How does he recognize that voice? It's the same voice that had spoken to him months ago through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. Friend, if you are a follower of God, if you're up close and personal with him, you'll recognize his voice. When he speaks, you'll know it's God. When he tells you to do something, you'll know you ought to do it. When he gets up close and personal with you, you can hear him as a gentle whisper in your spirit. You can hear him as he shouts from the top of his voice. You recognize the very voice of God for 40 days and 40 nights Moses was in the presence of God Almighty receiving the word of God for the people of God I'm about to sit down but before I do I've got to tell you that this story as I read it it reminds me of another mountain of another meal and another mediator when I come to Exodus chapter 24, I stand on Mount Sinai. But from the vantage point of Mount Sinai, I look to Mount Calvary. 
Because on Mount Sinai, the word is written. On Mount Calvary, the word is crucified. On Mount Sinai, sin is revealed. On Mount Calvary, sin is removed. On Mount Sinai, I see the love of God uh, described. And on Mount Calvary, I see the love of God demonstrated. When I come to this story, it's nice to stand on Mount Sinai, but I need a better mountain. That better mountain is Mount Calvary. I think of another mountain and I also think of another meal. Because here in Exodus 24, there's a meal that seals the covenant as they sit with God and God gives them food to eat and something to drink. And my mind goes forward to when Jesus gathered with the disciples in the upper room that night on the night that he was betrayed and he took bread and the cup. And Jesus said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. This cup is the sign of the new covenant sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sin. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are acknowledging my broken body and my perfect blood that is shed upon you. And by faith, we feast on Christ. When I come to this mountain, I I see another mountain. When I get to this meal, I see a better meal. But when I look at this mediator, I see another mediator. Because in this story of Exodus 24, there's one mediator. His name is Moses. He goes and he stands in between the people of God and the God of the people. And he stands there and he receives the word. He's going to turn around and give it to the people as the word of God. But yet I look at Moses and I see that he is flawed. I see that he is sinful. I see that mediator. And while he's good, I need a better mediator. I need one who is perfect. I need one that is not blemished. I need one that is spotless. And when I see the mediator of Moses, I'm reminded of the great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the New Testament letter of Hebrews where it says that Jesus is of greater honor than even Moses. For Moses is a servant in the house of God, but Jesus is the son of the house of God. He is the one who rules over the house of God. So because of Jesus, I can get up close and personal with God. Because of Jesus, my sins though are scarlet can be made white as snow because of Jesus I can stand in God's holy presence not just for a few fleeting moments I can stand there both now and forevermore because of Jesus I can now say I've met someone who's greater far beyond celebrity status he's better than the president he's better than a Hollywood star studded actor or actress he is better than a professional athlete he is smarter than the smartest man he is smarter than the smartest gal he is wealthier than the wealthiest person. I get to stand before God because of what Jesus has done. For Jesus is my mediator and because of Christ, I get up close and personal with the God who wants to get up close and personal with me. Praise his holy name. So I acknowledge what the hymn writer says. The hymn writer says, when Before the throne, I stand in him complete. Jesus died, my soul to save. These lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it 
I said, he washed it. He washed it white as snow. So the only way that you and I can stand before a holy God is because God took care of our sinfulness in Jesus Christ. We come to Calvary. We come to the Lord's Supper. We find the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we realize that Jesus really did pay it all so that you and I can meet with God up close and personal. I don't know about you, but I don't want this day just to pass by like every other Sunday. In fact, I don't need another Sunday. I need a holy appointment with God. And you do too. You've never experienced this day. And once this Sunday comes and goes, you'll never experience it again. My friend, on this day, God, the holy God, the one who is revealer and redeemer, that God, the one true God of the universe, he wants to get up close and personal with you. He's paved the way. He's removed all the blockage, all the barricades. He is here to meet with you. Won't you come and snuggle up with the Savior? God be praised. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give this invitation. And Father, we pray that those individuals who are here who do not know you as Savior and Lord, that today they will come forward by faith and they'll say, I need my sins forgiven. I need the blood of the lamb applied to my life. Lord, I pray that those individuals today who are in this room listening to my voice, who've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. Let it be like no other Sunday ever before. And Father, I pray for those believers who are here and yet they're struggling. They're struggling because of various things, a sense of loss, a sense of frustration. They're struggling. And Lord, today they need to come and kneel here at the altar and pray. Maybe some just need to come and join the church. Whatever it is, oh Lord, we pray that you will honor and glorify yourself because you are our great God. In Jesus' name, amen.